There is a saying that is well known. Uh, it is not original with me. I don't even know that it's distinctly, uniquely Christian. It's been uh, taught and said by many within the Christian world, authors and pastors through the years. But the saying is one, no doubt, that you know and understood and perhaps have applied to your own life in your own ways. And it's something that I have to continually remind myself over and over and over. But the saying goes something like this. In the Christian life, the longest journey that you will take is the 18 inches from your head to your heart. Have you heard that before? The, the longest distance is, is that little distance from your head to your heart. What do we mean by that? We say that because there are certain things that we conceptually, intellectually, our mind knows them to be true. They're fact, right? But, but to actually live them out in our lives, that truth that is in our head must make it to our heart where, where then uh, as the causal core of our personhood, as one author says it, our heart is, is where our lives are lived out of, right? And so the connection between our heads and heart is extremely critical, extremely important. Uh, and, and yet that distance... The distance that separates head knowledge from heart knowledge is, the, is, is in some ways, you could say, it's essentially what the Christian life is wrapped up about, living the Christian life, for those that are believers. Primarily, my message this morning is for those of you that have trusted on Jesus Christ for salvation, that you realize your sins have separated you from a righteous and holy God, and you have come to the place in your life where you realize that Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross is the only way that you can have forgiveness of sins, a right relationship with God. And so now you seek to live out the Christian life. You you seek to live in the way that God would instruct, and what now you have is this battle to live out of your heart the things that your head knows to be true, right? Paul has been going through the book of Philippians, and he has outlined several truths that he needs them to understand. And he's gone through instructions, and as he begins to close up the book, he wants to remind them, listen, you actually need to believe this. You need to think this way. You need to live this out now in your life. This is extremely important that, that I don't just want these truths rattling around up here in conceptual knowledge that they don't actually get to your life and affect the way you live. And so in some ways, the things that Paul has been emphasizing and outlining, in some ways, they're very simple. In some ways, the Christian life is, for those of us that know Jesus Christ as Savior. It's not that, we, it's not that there are some difficult truths that only the elite few can master, right? That's not the Christian life. In some ways, the Christian life and honoring God and doing what he says and living the way we ought, in some ways, they're simple truths that we just have to actually diligently put into practice and live out in our lives, that our, the way we think, the way we believe in our heart, it actually has to be lived out. And the thing is, Paul wanted the, the Philippians to live this way. That's why he wrote them the letter. He wanted them to experience life in this way. He wanted them to experience the Christian life. And as he begins to wrap it up, he's just going to give some final summary, some conclusions. These are the instructions because I actually want you to put this into practice. And he wanted them to live the right way. He wanted them to have a life that would be honoring and pleasing to God. The title of our message this morning is Instructions for Peace-Filled Living. In some ways, all of us, humanity is on a quest for peace, right? 
not just peace as in the absence of conflict, but peace in the biblical sense of everything being right and good, everything being as it should be. The, the Old Testament Hebrew word for that concept is shalom, that, that, that a peace that transcends all peace, a shalom where everything is as it should be, the way it was in the garden when everything was perfect, and the way it will be in the forever kingdom when Christ establishes and rules forever, and we will again have peace. We will have shalom. We will have perfection. And now, for this life, as we're here in this already, not yet, and we are waiting, we are, for those of us that know the truth of the gospel, and we are still seeking after, we recognize when things aren't right. We recognize when sin affects our lives. We recognize when things are not as they should be. And Paul steps in with instructions for the Philippians, and therefore instructions for us, because there is, we should be living in such a way that we experience a taste of that peace now because we know the God of that peace. And so we can experience some of that now. And that's why Paul wrote this book because he wanted them to understand these truths. And as he begins to wrap it up, he's just going to highlight some of the instructions. So I want to walk through this because what you're going to see as he begins to wrap it up, there's going to be uh, several commands in this. In just We're just going to go through six verses and you're going to see a command to make sure you do this, a command to make sure you do that, a command to make sure you don't do this other thing, and just boom, boom, boom. He's got a bunch of thoughts, and in some ways they're going to feel like they're going different directions, but these are some of the instructions that are going to lead to a peace-filled life. And at the end, we'll try to wrap it up and see how we can all make sense of it. Because remember, the, the longest distance in the Christian life is the 18 inches from the head to the heart. And Paul has explained for several chapters now a bunch of truths that the Philippians need to know and live and practice, and he wants them to actually live this out now in their life. What is their mindset? What is the way that they need to think? What is the attitude that they need to have to be able to live out some of the instructions that he's been giving them? Well, he's going to tell them, here's some of the mindset, here's some of the attitude, here's some of the way that you need to live out so that these truths go from your head to your heart and they actually affect your life in the day-to-day. -day. Look at verse 4. Paul says this, chapter 4, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. So you've seen this admonition before where Paul has been talking about the need to rejoice. And here he's instructing them, and he repeats it twice, that they're supposed to rejoice in the Lord always. And just in case if they're wondering, like, always. Paul, do you really mean always? Like, I mean, certainly there's some kinds I don't need to rejoice, right? I mean, when situations are really bad, surely you don't mean I have to rejoice then, right? And as if they didn't understand rejoice in the Lord always... I'll say it again. Rejoice. That's what Paul wants them to understand, that they can always find joy no matter their circumstances. And Paul wanted them to understand that. We've talked about this concept of biblical joy before and that this isn't a frivolous joy or just the emotional excitement of happiness, but it's this steadfast confidence of hope and trust in joy in a sovereign God who's working out his plans and purposes. And Paul had that joy. He wanted them to experience the joy. He wanted them to rejoice in all circumstances. Think about as we've walked through the book of Philippians. And remember Paul's setting. In chapter 1, he opened this book and he said, listen, I want you to know in verse 12 of chapter 1 that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So here Paul is being imprisoned unjustly and he says, I give thanks for that because it's actually pushed the gospel message forward as others have heard about my imprisonment. And so he said he would rejoice even as he talks later about those 
who are misaligning his character and those who are speaking ill of him. And, and he says, what's the matter? It's really that Christ is being exalted. And so Paul is someone who rejoiced. He lived this out. And he wants the believers in Philippi to rejoice, whatever their circumstances, because he begins to t- make clear that even some of them are facing hardship, suffering, persecution. And he said, rejoice always in the Lord. That's where you find hope, confidence in a sovereign God who's working out his plans, just like it was happening in Paul's life and it was happening in their life. And he says, if you're going to, if you're going to carry out everything I've said so far, so far in this book, you're going to need to have attitudes of consistent joy. So he says, rejoice in the Lord always. That's the way they need to think. This is what they need to be working on in their minds so that it gets to their heart. Look at verse 5. This is a little bit different. Let your reasonableness let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Some of your Bibles might say graciousness. Let your graciousness, let your gentleness. The idea of that word there is someone who doesn't uh, work for everything that's owed them. So, someone who isn't unrealistically adamant about what is their due. It, it's, it's a difficult concept. What I'm trying to explain is someone that who's so gracious, so gentle, that they don't fight tooth and nail for what's rightfully theirs. They're not a jerk to get everything that by the letter of the law they could have. They're so gracious that they're willing to suffer themselves because they're reasonable. They're gracious. They're gentle. And, and, and there's Paul, as he's written so far, and there are people who are speaking badly of him, and he explains that in chapter 1. He says, what does it matter? Christ is going forward. And that was his ultimate goal. In chapter 2, he explains to the Philippians that they needed to, put not, they, they needed to, to have the example of Christ and in humility put the interests of others first. That in order for them to have unity as a church, they needed to be willing to put others first. And here Paul's reminding them, listen, you're going to need to be gracious. You're going to need to be gentle. You're going to need to be the kind of people whose, whose graciousness is known to everyone, inside and outside the church. And you think of the powerful effect of the corporate witness that that would have. We'll come back to that concept later. But he says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And then he has, this is not a command, it's just a reminder, the Lord is at hand. And he's like, listen, you, you need to be people who are rejoicing always. You need to be people who are gracious and gentle and reasonable. He's about to tell them not to worry under any circumstances. And, and there's this reminder. Here's why all this is true. Because the Lord is at hand. He's reminding them. Now, there's questions as to, is, is this a reminder that the Lord's return is imminent in a time period, like that in a time sense, quickly he's returning, or is it in a spatial sense that the Lord's presence is near, that, that God is a comforter? Psalm 23, he's the shepherd that is close to his sheep, right? And, and it could be a sense of both, that Paul is reminding both of these things, that why can you be reasonable and gracious and gentle? Because the Lord is near, He will sort these things out in the end. Someday he will return and make everything right. Why can they rejoice always? Because the Lord is at hand. His presence is near. Why do they not have to worry about anything as we get into the next verses? Because the Lord is at hand. And there's this reminder, this truth, that the sovereign God is working out his plans and purposes, and in that they can take great comfort. 
And so he keeps going in verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so there's this admonition, this command, that they're not supposed to be anxious about anything. They're not supposed to be worried about anything. And there are so many things going on in the world today that can cause us as believers anxious fear, right? Worry, turmoil, wondering if things are going the way that they ought. And you think about Paul as he gave these instructions. Has the world changed? Well, some of, some of the things that cause us fear are different today than in Paul's day. But at the root, uh, when you get down to the heart fundamental level things that would cause anxiety and worry and fear, and you realize that, that, that we, we are not living in two separate worlds. Some of the way it works itself out is different, but here's Paul writing from prison. He doesn't know if he's going to make it out of this alive. He doesn't know if he's going to live to see the Philippians again or not. He's hopeful that he will, but he, said, he has that great statement in chapter 2 where he talks about to live is Christ and to die is gain, and that's where his steadfast hope is. That's where his confidence is, is that he knows that Christ is the ultimate goal of his life, and if he keeps on living, that's how he's going to live, is just to, to spread the message of the gospel. And yet if he dies, then he gets that ultimate ultimate prize for which he lived his life. He gets Christ. That's gain. And he has this steadfast confidence then that he doesn't need to be worried about his situations and circumstances. And yet we talked about this when we went through chapter... Two, that he explains why he sent Timothy and Epaphroditus. And he even says that, that he was anxious to hear. He uses the exact same word and says that he was anxious to... Sorry, hold on. It's not the exact same word yet. He uses a word that means anxiousness and worry to say that, that he'll be relieved of his anxiety when he finds out how the Philippians are doing. But he says that at this moment he, he wants to send Timothy, but at this point he can't. He says in chapter 2, verse 24, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. That's the exact same word. That Timothy is someone who would be genuinely anxious for the welfare of the Philippians. And so we recognize this tension. We brought it out a little bit last time that, that it's what Paul is saying is not that, not that every single care and concern is wrong. It's when those cares and concerns become ultimate and ruling. And we forget the fact that there's a sovereign God working out his plans and purposes and, and, and that, that we allow that worry to then dominate our lives to the point that we are trying to take God's place, to the point that we're, we think our plans need to be worked out in our lives. And Paul says there's no reason for that. Don't, don't be anxious about every, anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And so he, he says that prayer is the antidote to worry, and he names the specific kind of prayer, that it's supplication. That's, these are these requests where you go to God and you say, God, help! God, I, I need you for this. I, I'm supplicating. I need you to intercede. Would you work out your plans in this way? I have these requests. And then he says, thanksgiving should be added into these prayers. And you think about an attitude of gratefulness and what that does to combat things that make you anxious. 
and to stop and count your blessings to realize the way that God is at work in your life. And so here's the Philippians that they don't, they don't know for sure what is going to happen to them. How much persecution is going to come into their church on their behalf? And Paul says, listen, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We've talked before uh, about that word guard. And the idea there, it's a military term that like a, like a sentry guard or a soldier that stands watch to look out for any threats, what Paul is saying is that the peace of God then guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. What a beautiful word picture that then we could have the peace of God in that way. What are the instructions for peace-filled living? Well, number one, rejoice about everything. N- number two, let your reasonableness be known to all. Be gracious, be gentle. Be kind and compassionate in that sense. It's going to take a a sense of humility for that to be accomplished. Number three, don't worry about anything, but in everything, pray to God. And then he has this other instruction then in in verse 8. He switches gears again and says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. As we look through this list, that verb, the, what, the, the last verb, think on these things, that's where I want to camp in and start thinking about this. Because in order to understand the list above, you've got to understand what he's telling you to do. And he's using a word that doesn't just mean think. It's not like just give thought to. He's using a word that talks about like to evaluate and consider, to give diligent thought to. He's telling them to give a lot of careful attention to what they're filling their mind with and the way that they're living because they're going to live out of their mind. What their mind is thinking on Their heart is going to begin to live out these things, and he wants them to think on things. Now you can turn to the list. Here's the way they need to think. They need to think on what is true, that which is consistent with reality, that which is not false. They need to think about whatever is honorable, something that's worthy, something that's worthy of honored, entitled to respect whatever is just, whatever is right morally, the things that are upright and good, whatever is uh, pure, the root word there is holy. And so you think of that, whatever is holy, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, the idea of being pleasing, the idea of being lovely, good in that sense, whatever is commendable, if it's praiseworthy, if it's uh, worthy of praise, worthy of approval. And then, as if he hasn't explained it enough, he's using all these whatever, 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 just making sure he runs the whole gamut. And then he explains it this way, if there is any excellence, so if there's moral excellence or virtue is the idea of the word, if there's anything worthy of praise, these are the things that you need to set your mind on, he's saying. Think carefully. He's telling them to evaluate, to consider the way that they're filling their lives. Now, a a list like this would not have been uncommon. If you were a citizen in Philippi, if you had any... uh 
influence from the Greco-Roman culture around you, philosophers of the day would have loved, they would have similar lists, right? And Paul is saying, listen, what you need to be thinking about, what you need to be filling your mind with, start with a list like this. Is it true, right? And that one at the very beginning somewhat sets the standard for the rest. We can think of a lot of things that are commendable or lovely or pleasing or, or good in that sense, but to start with something that is true, is it true? Is it absence of any error? Is it right? Where is our standard of truth as Christians? It's God's word, right? That we as believers would understand and recognize truth is revealed in the person of God through his word. And then we need, only then will we be able to understand and have accurate definitions of things that are honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and things that are ex- have excellence and things that are worthy of praise. If we don't understand these things, we will be lost in a culture that has lost its moral bearings. We live today uh, in a society that, that doesn't understand what truth is, that doesn't understand what morally right is, that doesn't understand what is excellence, that doesn't understand what is commendable. We live in a culture that calls wrong right and right wrong. And if we aren't well-versed in what is true, if we aren't setting our minds on these things, if we aren't thinking the right way, very, very quickly we will begin living the wrong way because we live out of what our heart and minds think, and we've got to set our minds on these things. Think carefully about it. Paul isn't just saying, he's not just telling them what they need to be thinking about in terms of the content of what they're thinking. He's telling them to be careful in the way they go about thinking, to be thinking about things that are true and honorable and commendable and lovely. And as we do that as people, we need to think very critically and very, very carefully. And so a a point of application as we're going through this here, would be to that we as Christians, we need to be talking to ourselves about what is truth. I'm using the word talking to ourselves in distinction from the idea of um, listening to ourselves. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. He said, have you ever realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Champ, I left a little white book on my, I I need that. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, have you ever realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. We wake up in the morning and we begin to process the thoughts and emotions of our day and the things that make us encouraged make us encouraged and the things that make us discouraged are discouraged. And by and large, we're not giving active, careful, critical thought to our day. We're listening to ourselves. And Paul is telling them, think. Think about what's true. Think about what's honorable. Think about what's commendable. And if, if you, brother or sister, are trying to live the Christian life in reactive mode, you just wake up and take things as they come, you're going to be a very up and down Christian. You're not, you're not going to have a, a peace-filled life. And Paul wants them to realize they need to think and set their minds and evaluate and order their life on what is true, what's commendable, what's honorable. And you're going to have to give careful careful thought because the world around you 24-7 is not giving you the right definition of what's true and honorable and commendable and lovely. And so it's only as you are attached to this book that you'll see and understand what is true and how you can live out what is praiseworthy in your life. 
C.J. Mahaney says it this way, on, on a daily basis, we're faced with two simple choices. We can either listen to ourselves and our constantly changing feelings about our circumstances, or we can talk to ourselves about the unchanging truth of who God is and what he's accomplished for us at the cross through his son, Jesus. And over and over and over, we need to reset our minds on the truth of the gospel, the truth of what Christ has done for us, and that will set and order our lives. Otherwise, we're going to go through life, and you're not, you're not really going to have much to rejoice at because your heart is set on the wrong things, and you're not, going to have, uh, you're not going to be a reasonable person. You're not going to be someone who's gracious. You're, you're going to be someone whose life is filled with worry because you're not telling yourself and working to fill your mind with the truth truth of scripture and who God is. And so this is the way that we need to think. But not only was Paul interested in the way that they were thinking, verse 8, he was also interested in the way they lived their lives, in their actions, verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. He's telling them things that they have learned and received. That word received has the idea of that they've learned it through instruction and teaching as they've been taught these truths. He wants them to remember all of it, and then he wants them to practice these things, to keep on living this way, that not only thinking right, but that they would live the right way just as they've been taught from Paul and others. And a few verses ago at the end of chapter 3, we saw that admonition that they needed to follow the example that they had in Paul and in others. And so he's just reminding them of these truths. They need to, they need to be people that are always rejoicing. They need to be people who are gentle and gracious. They shouldn't worry about anything, but they should give everything to God in prayer. They should set their mind on the things of truth and everything that's commendable and praiseworthy in that sense. And then they need to actually live according to the example that they've received in Paul and others. Those things that they've been taught, do them. So here's, as I was trying to think about this, we've kind of worked our way through the passage, and let's, let's try to apply this to our hearts and lives. And to do that, I think we need to think, back up and ask ourselves, so what is Paul doing with these few verses? right? And, and why did God want the Philippians to know this? And why does God want us to know this? He, Paul has been giving them instructions, and, and some of it I've tried to bring back and remind you of what we've learned in the weeks as we've gone through this. And here is what Paul is trying to help them capture and understand. He's trying to help and remind them that if they're going to be people who rejoice at the gospel going forward, regardless of how painful those circumstances are, if they're going to be people who stay united as a church and they put the needs and interests of others forward and they follow Christ's humble example, if they're going to be people who are looking forward to the day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord because they remember that the, the Lord is at hand, if they're going to be people whose lives are not filled with anxiety and worry, they, they need to think the right way. They need to set their minds on things that are true. And, and, and Paul just real quickly, he wants to remind them, this is like the summary, hey, everything I've been teaching you for several chapters, remember this or you're not going to carry it out. Do you remember uh, in high school, right, some of those first moments of freedom when your parents give you the keys to the car, right? Uh, you get to, maybe you go away to college by yourself for the first time. Do you remember those closing seconds going out the door and your mom is talking 100 miles an hour, you know, reminding you of all the things, like if she's trying to wrap up 18 years of parenting into about four seconds there, call me when you get there. Don't, don't let any strangers into the car, right? Uh, um, don't, don't stop on the side of the road. Uh, remember who you are. Uh, don't, don't get into trouble that, that, that quickly, right? This is Paul's, it, 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 you'll see when he gets to the end 
end of his letters, he gives a whole bunch of imperatives. And he says, listen, this is, this is what it's going to take. Set your mind on these things. Here's the instructions that you need. And I want you to think about this as you go through these few verses. And Paul says, especially in the admonition not to worry. And he says, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. And then as he tells them the way to think, he wants them to practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. I want you to think about God's kindness to those believers there in Philippi. Do you see God's kindness in these verses? I mean, think, think about this with me. Here, here's a church. They were not a perfect church by any means. In fact, part of the reason Paul needed to write the letter, some of it's a thank you letter for, for the gift that they sent him, but as he sends them this thank you letter, he's like, look, we, we got to correct some things. There are some things going wrong in the church there. And, and there's a bunch of instructions he wants to give them. And why? God is correcting the church there at Philippi through the words of Paul, but do you see his kindness, God's kindness for these believers, that he was not just coming along and and, and with a two-by-four just whacking them upside the head and saying, look, church of Philippi, these problems are going on, and he wasn't doing that. God wanted them to have peace. He wanted them to know the God of peace. He wanted them to be people whose lives were filled with joy. He wanted them to be reasonable and gracious and gentle people as a witness to all, both inside and outside the church. He didn't want them to be people whose lives were filled with anxiety. He certainly didn't want them to be caught up in error and falsehood. He wanted them setting their minds diligently on the things of truth. And so God, in his kindness, in his goodness... He, he says, you've got to correct these things. So here's the point of application. As we've been going through these weeks of Philippians, I trust that God in his goodness and in his kindness has brought conviction. Times where God's word has showed you this is something I, I need to get right. Whether it's I need to be a more rejoiceful person or whether it's I, I need to be someone whose life is marked by humility or I need to be someone who isn't a worried person or I need to be someone who's, who sets my mind on things that are true because I want to press on for, for the upward call Call of Christ in Christ, uh, calling of Christ in Christ Jesus. I'm forgetting those things that are behind and I'm pressing on. Does that need to be true in your life? Do you need to work out your salvation with fear and trembling? If God has brought those moments of conviction into your life, here's what I want you to know. That is God's goodness and kindness because he wants you to live a life of peace. God is not a God who's standing in heaven just ready to whack us upside the head when we step out of line. If you're here and a believer in Jesus Christ, sometimes we we know and understand salvation and we know truth, but we just think, if I don't walk the straight and narrow, God's just ready. He's like this cosmic killjoy, and the reason the Bible is full of thou shalts and thou shalt nots is because God doesn't want me to have any fun. God's trying to take peace away from my life, and I'm glad I have salvation, but if I don't live the way God wants me to, I will never experience peace, right? And sometimes there are too many professing believers who are trapped in this, in this fake Christian life that is worthless because we, we, we want to, in one sense, know the truth of the gospel, but get as close to the edge as we can, right? Because I think that, that living my own way and pursuing my own pleasures and my own definitions of things that are true, of things that are honorable, of things that are lovely, of things that are commendable, that surely the world has better things to offer. That's what we tell ourselves. 
And so we'll try to do both, right? We think, surely God doesn't want what's best for me. And brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you that's a lie. It's a lie straight from the pit of hell. Here's why God has given us instruction in his word. Here's why God's revealed himself for us. Because he wants us to have peace-filled lives. And the natural man will never find that on their own, right? And God reveals these instructions to us. And he says, live this way. Don't live that way. Be rejoicing. Be gracious. Be gentle. Don't let your minds worry about these things. Set your minds on the fact that the Lord is at hand. He's a sovereign God who's working out his plans and purposes. And only then will you understand the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. And we set our hearts and minds on these things that are right and true, and we look for other believers who are living this way, and we try to follow their example, because then we understand the God of peace who is with us. This is why God has given us his word. He wants what's best for us. It's not, he's not a cosmic killjoy. He's here to give us a full life. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that starts at salvation. You know and understand that truth of what Christ has done for us. And, 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 and the offer and invitation is to repent from your sins and turn to Christ in salvation. For those of you that know Christ, it is, is this God of the Bible your ultimate hope and satisfaction? Or have you set your heart and sights on something else? Something else that is doomed to fail, that cannot live up to the expectations you have given to it. We, even as Christians in this culture, we can tend to look for peace or joy or satisfaction or that concept of shalom that I was talking about. We can look for it in, in, in things like good health, whether for us or for a loved one. And when you go through those health crises, you look for peace in, in the doctor's reports, right? And good news. Surely I'm not the only one. I've watched my mom go through this. Is that what's going to bring me peace? A doctor's good report? My mom's ultimate health? It won't. It, it won't be the education of our children or following their sports or whatever their future is. It won't be that promotion at work. It won't be living for the weekend or a second home or the vacation of a dreams. None of these things in and of themselves are wrong. But when they become ultimate, they will not live up to the expectations we put on them. They will disappoint. They cannot bear the weight that we are putting on them. Only God can do that. He's the God of peace. He's the God who desires to give us the good life. It's why we need to be people who rejoice, who make our gentleness known to all, who, who, who refuse to get caught up in the worries and anxieties of the world, and who set our minds on the things that should be. And as we do that, I think we become a witness to the world in, in ways that we wouldn't otherwise understand. Gordon Fee said this, in a post-Christian, post-modern world. So he's talking about a world that, that no longer assumes the truth of the Bible. He's not saying that the... the and he's speaking uniquely of the Western world and where once it was assumed that, that God is true, that Christian... And he's not saying everyone was Christians, but there was a mutual starting point. In the world today we live in, in the West, that's no longer a common starting point. Some of us still believe it. The majority probably does not. In a post-Christian, post-modern world, which has generally lost its bearings because it has generally abandoned its God, 
Such spirituality, the kind I've been trying to admonish us to, is very often the key to effective evangelism. In a world where fear is a much greater reality than joy, our privilege is to live out the gospel of true shalom, wholeness in every sense of that word, and point others to its source. Paul desired that the Philippian believers get back on track in some of these areas. Not because he wanted their lives to be miserable, because he knew God had a better life. And for us as believers here in Shemong at Shawnee Baptist Church, in the whatever ways God has pointed out to you and put his finger on your heart, I want this area of your life addressed. Trust me, it's for your good that God's Spirit is bringing conviction through his word. The way John Piper puts it is that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. God wants to work in our lives so that we find our greatest joy in Him. It brings Him great glory, and it's a witness to the watching world. I trust that you're finding encouragement through this, these places in Philippians. As Paul strove to teach them these truths, we as well need to be people who order our thinking by them. Because our our lives will be lived out of our thoughts. The Christian life is lived out of our hearts. And these things that we know to be true, we must diligently work on them and practice them so that they are carried out in our hearts and we live as we ought as Christians. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you are so good and so kind that your correction in the believer's life is for good because you want to give us the life that you intended. Father, for any believers that are here, myself included, whom you are working on, convicting, chastening, Father, may we recognize and realize that you, you love us. That's why you pursue us with your correction. For any unbelievers here who, who don't know the truth of the gospel, may they turn to Christ in salvation. May they see their sin that's separating them from you and turn to what only Christ alone can provide in salvation. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.